as uh, Fiona and John and I travel to Clayton Bay from time to time where we have our house, there's a very spectacular set of Christmas lights just out of Strathalbum as you head towards Malang. So much so now that it's got uh, uh, event status, you have to slow down as you go past the event to see these Christmas lights. Many years ago when that was the first display, they had a wonderful, very uh, gospel-focused narrative in their Christmas lights. Um, I just noticed recently as we were driving past, not at night time, but we could see them, that it's now being changed to a spectacular array of Santas and snowmen and reindeers and anything but the gospel story, in as spectacular as they might be. My heart is saddened to see that. Now, a lot of you know of my determination that when we put our lights up on our corner, that it would be a Santa-free zone. Um, Though I did rehabilitate St Nicholas on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, just to say he has got very good pedigree. But the greater narrative that we have is much more worth telling and celebrating. The secret was out on Christmas Eve. Uh, Three secrets were out. One is that Santa is a, for those who are there, a seasonal worker, fly in, fly out, and a bishop. Just saying. (laughs) Uh, So, however, the reason that I focus on those types of things is that culture change, and even what's described sometimes as culture wars, is often an insidious thing. It's under the radar. And one of the two key features you can identify to see the battles over culture are icons and narratives. What are the icons and what are the narratives that our community is celebrating? And the battle for Christmas has been thought not through philosophical debates and other things, it's been fought through the commercialisation of Santas and reindeers and nice snowmen and all those different types of things and the icons around it. And it is a seasonal thing. You go into... Might attend or other stores, as I said to Fiona, just demonstrating my spiritual discipline at this time of year, the lights are 50% off. And I resisted temptation. <laughs> because it's the season's finished as far as the stores are concerned. Hot cross buns are already in Woolworths. Seasons come and go. And while the, the icons, whether it be snowmen and Father Christmas and reindeers and all that things, or the narratives around it, can seem trivial, there's actually a deeper sense behind it because we are losing the narratives that are essential and are worth celebrating and do relate to everyday life, unlike the tinsel and the superficial elements of Christmas. So I have some big questions for the season to address this morning and it's not just trying to be, you know, humorous and so on. It's actually wanting to ensure that the focus on our faith and all that we celebrate and praise is well grounded. So there's a reason behind the questions I'm about to ask. As I've been reflecting on the last few days, had a bit of a chance uh, after the, the Christmas services 
to begin to reflect. It's been a strong sense in my prayers that God is wanting us as a church to focus on generational change in 2024. Strong sense of God saying, now is the time. If we're waiting for when is the right moment to begin to think about how we can be intentional about generational change, maybe even engaging a, a children's and family worker, now is the time to focus through it. And it isn't just a question of out with the old and in with the new. It's actually about grounding and giving new life to those traditions that are otherwise slipping us by. A couple of questions for you. And this is a quick hands up, hands down. Who has already packed up their Christmas decorations in the box? Okay, a few there. Who is awaiting the right time to pack up the decorations when you have a free moment? Or who has yet to take your decorations down? Okay. Now I have... Who leaves the decorations up all the time? Fair enough, Raquel. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. And I have to confess I'm a convert to this. I used to be one of those getting the Boxing Day right, the Christmas tree boxes coming out, whip it away, pack it away, fresh start. I am a convert. So why might we choose, is there a correct time to take down the Christmas tree decorations? Is Christmas done and dusted, as the stores would like us to think? The narrative, according to my mobile phone, which has been sending me all these unwanted text messages, is that as soon as Christmas is over, it is Boxing Day and Proclamation Day, being South Australian. But you won't hear much about Proclamation Day in the stores because it's all about the sales. A number of the sales, including my biggest source of temptation, Sydney Tools, keep on saying that it's still Boxing Day, they say. The sales are still there as it goes on. It's a narrative to say the season's changed. It's the season to bring your wallets out and to go and pour into the shops. To which Fiona and I said, thank you very much. No, we're going to Clayton Bay, which is fortunately shop-free. Exactly when is the season of Christmas? And it's nearly always, according to the Hallmark movies, the season leading up to Christmas Day. But the real season of Christmas is 6th of January. Well, at least it starts, it finishes on midnight, on the 5th of January. The key event in our church calendar is Epiphany at this stage. And to understand the season of Christmas, we need to understand the event of Epiphany, which is always the 6th of January in our traditions. And that is the event where the wise men, the Magi, came from the east. They weren't kings. We don't know whether they were free or not. We know there were free gifts. And they came perhaps weeks, perhaps months, perhaps even a year or two later. And that's the, the time it's also remembered, not celebrated, for the slaughter of the, of the innocents because that's when Herod was going about his determination, that awful event, the violence behind it. So epiphany is not one that's actually in the stable. It's interesting as I've typed in my Google search engine these days to see what comes up for pictures of the uh, three magi, 
every picture that I came across, except for this one, which is sort of twisted around it, has them in the manger. Now, a manger is actually a feeding trough. I mean, there wasn't a stable, but that's where our pictures bring them because they want to have them all clustered in that one scene. But actually, no, it was weeks, months, even possibly years later that they had those visitors from the east who came. So Epiphany is celebrated in the, uh, across pretty much most Christian traditions on January the 6th. And the season of Christmas concludes the day or the midnight before you get to Epiphany. So we're still in the season of Christmas. And I want to make the season of Christmas stay with us. So that's my determination. So the next question is, if, that, if the uh, 6th of January marks the end of the Christmas season, what are the 12 days of Christmas about? Are they about the giving of partridges and pear trees? Now, I've resisted the temptation. It was such a temptation to bring you one of the many versions of the 12 days of Christmas and the partridge and the pear tree and it goes on. It's a lot of fun. It goes on for quite a while. And it's also part of the um, mythology that sort of goes around it. There is no Christian tradition, let me say, around the so-called carol about the partridge and the pear tree and so on. There's no tradition of uh, expectation that you're going to get a gift every day for the 12 days of Christmas. Sorry for those who are expecting that gift. It's the boast of some true love saying how extravagant they've been in giving all these gifts and so the song goes through the boast of all the gifts that have come over those 12 days. And even as much as some people might try and say there's a spiritual theological significance behind the one, the two, the three and four and so on, that's actually nonsense. It's just a love song, basically, and can be relegated to it. So, Paul, that is banned. All right, we are not doing... Uh, happy with that one. <laughs> that is not a genuine Christian carol, but it does celebrate the 12 days. Why 12 days? Because that's the number of days between Jan- sorry, uh, December the 25th and January the 6th. That is the 12 days of Christmas. So where does Twelfth Night come in? Anyone know that one? You know, Shakespeare had it, yeah. And this is where we often get lost by the tradition. See how much the narratives... Back in the day, you would have known the answer to these questions. The twelfth night is the final day of the season of Christmas. It is the night before Epiphany. And it was a night for a bit of mischief. It was a night for parties and for celebrating. And in a more innocent, apart from the gallons of cider that were drunk, apparently... It was also time for games. And so Twelfth Night celebrates the mischief that's getting up on that particular night and event. Now the big question. Who came to church this morning expecting to celebrate Candlemas? I rest my case. We've lost the narrative. Traditionally... Candlemas was the first Sunday after Christmas, today, where you would all bring your candles. Show me your candles. No, I can't bless them, I'm sorry. You would bring your candles. Yes. Well, actually, I take it away because the battery went. It was rather, rather sad. I had to replace the battery. Sorry, Joy. Uh, 
and I'm not going to bless a battery-based candle. <laughs> there was a day when you would bring your candles and the minister, the priest, would bless them and you would take them partly as a sort of a spiritual presence in your households and the fragrance it would bring, uh, but more particularly because of the, the, the symbolism of the light shining to the, the Gentiles. It's a preparation for Epiphany where the, the light is now shared not just for the people of Israel but is shared for all nations is the symbol behind it. I don't think we'll bring back candle bass next year but you still have a chance to celebrate Twelfth Night. Uh, Twelfth Night, this is a quote going back from William Sands um, who was apparently an antiquarian which is I think a word for a sort of a holder of all customs back in the late 18th, early 19th century. And uh, apparently, back in the day in Europe, and especially in the um, United Kingdom, <coughs> Twelfth Night was almost as big as Christmas, as a celebration, especially for those around Cornwall and Kent and those sort of areas. Um, there's some strange words that I was going to ask Barry about that I hadn't quite understand. But Twelfth Night, according to William Sands, was probably the most popular day throughout the Christmas. The Christmas was from Christmas Day up until the evening before Epiphany and the other movements. There were cakes. There, was party, there were parties. So not too late before we, January the 5th, to mark on a quick diary date, to invite your friends to celebrate the Twelfth Night. Run with it as you will, Raquel, 12 cakes. <laughs> so, it isn't so much about the narratives and some of the cultural adaptations, but the deeper truths behind it are reflected in our Bible readings. Between Christmas Day and Epiphany, we have some significant celebrations that we often overlook. Today is the presentation of Jesus in the temple, and that's the Bible readings that we had. And the challenge is for us to see what Simeon and Anna saw, what they were waiting for, and their joy in seeing it in this child. And it's a reminder for me as I was reflecting on it, is do I take Jesus for granted? Do I take the entry of this child into the world as just another of those stories that come and go, as our culture would try and tell us? Or is this a life-changing, life faith-making focus of what we celebrate? Can I see what they saw in this child, Jesus? Now, I've also resisted the temptation to have a discussion. We're welcome to have it over morning tea afterwards about Mary, did you know? And there's a big discussion, you know the song, Mary, Did You Know? As the yes, yes, no, no, yes, you did all those all different questions of who this child would be. Um, it's a work of art. Don't get to, you know, it's a creative sort of sense. Yes, Mary did have a sense that something was amazing and special about Jesus and have insights and revelation about this child. But I'm still pretty sure that Jesus blew her away in terms of his ministry and what he was actually able to do. So what is it in this child that Simeon and then Anna saw? So the first character is there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And it wasn't just an uh, incidental person. This is, Simeon is described as a man who was righteous 
and devout, righteous in the sense that he is in a right relationship with the God of Israel. He was a covenant man. He was holding on to the promises of God and he was devout. He was holding those promises with a sense of expectation, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now I wanted you to focus on that phrase. The first thing that he was waiting for is the consolation of Israel. We see in Anna, she was also waiting. And there's a phrase that's used for Anna's waiting and expectation. But why was this so special? What does this phrase, the consolation of Israel, actually mean? It's the word for comfort. You remember in Isaiah, those words in Isaiah 40 that's brought to beautiful expression in Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort ye my people Israel. It's the same term. The promise of God. Let's go back to Isaiah 61. Beautiful passages that we had in that reading this morning. I was just really blown away when I read them. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Just feel the the richness. He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's a bit of a fashion these days to put on these warm uh, onesies and things or coats. Not always the onesies. I'm, I cannot go there. Never going to go there. It's just saying. But I notice of our grandkids, they just love putting on these sort of warm dressing gowns during the day. They just wrap themselves up in it because it's cosy. Isn't that image of God wrapping us up in his salvation and the robe of his righteousness. Just a beautiful image. We are wrapped in God's grace. We are embraced in God's love and held secure and comforted in that image. This is the moment that Simeon has been waiting and praying for and trusting God that he would not die until he saw the arrival of the one who would bring these garments these images. Clothe me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. And the second image is also just so rich. And I think this is a one that really I'm praying that God will work in and through us here at St. Matthew's. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, it's that organic gardening image. And yes, I've spent the last few days in our garden. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. What I take from that is that the hope we have for this world, in of all the fears and the horrors that we observe internationally, is not going to come through a superpower. It's not going to come through some politician. It's not going to come through some military solution. It will be organic. It'll come from the grassroots and it'll grow and make a difference as it has and it continues to do so. That is where we should be looking for our hope. God is at work in those roots, in those young seeds that are still emerging. And that is the image that really stays with me in terms of where we at this time at St Matthew's is we're not getting any younger 
really focus on how we can water and nurture and even plant some seeds and some young plants to grow. So we have this beautiful image of Simeon looking at this face and seeing in this baby the answer to his hopes and his prayers and saying, now I can die in peace. Isn't it a wonderful image? And the second figure we have, although they have a phrase that uh, is well celebrated for good reason, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the world, to the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people, Israel. That is what Simeon saw. And there's a second character, still in the temple, a very old prophet. It's interesting, those who say that there were no prophets until John the Baptist turned up, actually that's not the case. At least Anna was around, a female and a prophet, speaking God's truth into the realities of the world. Daughter of Haniel and the tribe of Asher, she'd been married for only seven years, probably married about when she was 13, was the usual age of marriage in that day and age, widowed when she was 20 and now was 84 years old. So what are we told about Anna? She never left the temple. Day and night, she remained faithful to her calling, her vocation. So she occupied the temple and that is the temple to which Jesus has been brought by his parents. So going back to Isaiah 62, focusing on Jerusalem and the temple, for Zion's sake I will not keep quiet, keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory and you'll be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Now a couple of things behind that. One is that as we reflect on the present state of Jerusalem and of the state of Israel and of Palestine and West Bank and Gaza and all those realities, we shouldn't confuse the modern state of Israel as the same entity that's spoken about in the Bible. The entity that God's spoken about the Bible is a community of people that is extended to all nations and becomes known as the kingdom of God. That is the work that is released through the, the ministry of Jesus. But God's heart and passion remains with Jerusalem and with the people of Israel and the land of Israel. And we pray that that would see peace. But here, this is at the heart of what Anna was looking and waiting for. Vindication shines out like the dawn. The night will come to an end. And as a dawn comes and the sun gets stronger, so the salvation, Israel's salvation, Zion's salvation, will be like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication. Next Sunday as we celebrate after Epiphany, we recognise that this gospel treasure isn't an exclusive one. It's designed, intended by God, always has been from the time of Abraham on to be shared 
and the invitation goes out to all nations and to all people. And so we see this wonderful image of this 84-year-old Anna, widow for so many of those years, taking delight and seeing the salvation in this child. I was looking around at different images on. This is the one that really grabbed me in that joy. Now, sometimes we say at Christmas at other times and we see the, the joy and the delight of children. We had a uh, wonderful um, all-age worship at our 5 p.m. outdoor service with our toddler mosh pit down the front and other things. It was a great time. And we can learn from the joy and the energy of the children, but we can learn no less from the delight and the wisdom and the insight of the Annas in our world as well. Can we, it's, can we see what she was seeing? Can we find that same joy and delight? She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Both Simeon and Anna, in their faithfulness, in their trust and confidence in God, were waiting for the continuing inbreaking of God's kingdom, for the work of redemption, for, for Jerusalem, and through the ministry of Jesus, for the world as a whole. Now, isn't that a narrative worth celebrating? Consign the decorations, the tinsel and others to the boxes. If you want to follow the 12 days of Christmas, if you keep them beyond the 12 days of Christmas, then bad fortune's going to come to you, apparently. Not so sure about that one. But the actual narrative that we celebrate is reflected in our church here, in our readings, in the way in which the church affirms and hold these ancient truths that we need to brush off and retell and present in a way which engages the next generation. This is the narrative that forms our faith and our hope. In God's grace, may it be so. Amen.